Hi, Ashley. Hi, Aaron. Have you recovered yet? You mean from that pizza I ate on Sunday night? Extra cheese always looks like a good idea in the commercials. No, I mean from the Global Board Leader Summit. Oh, you mean that little event we throw every year for 2,000 of our closest friends? That's the one. I think so. Have you? I'm getting there. Mostly, I keep reflecting back on all the great insights I heard. It was such a candy store of good ideas. And one thing that I heard come up over and over again is how the convergence of technology and social demographic shifts are fundamentally remaking how we think about work. It's a big topic and one that touches on so many of the themes we explore across this series, diversity, culture, and innovation. So it's probably no surprise that that's how we're going to spend the next several episodes, taking a deep dive into the future of work. The trends, forces, insights, and people around this are fascinating. We're going to unpack how they work together to shape the conversation around that future in some fundamental ways. I'm Ashley Marchand Orm. And I'm Erin Essenmacher, and this is Future Fluency, the podcast where we explore the changing face of America through the lens of innovation and culture and their impact on business, brought to you by the National Association of Corporate Directors. Ashley, it turns out our conversations around unconscious bias earlier in the series provide a great foundation for this conversation. So much of what we think we understand about work is changing, and changing quickly. Exactly. And those old understandings are rooted in old ways of thinking about things like how work gets done, how we think about the hiring process, and who makes a good worker or a good leader. To kick off this series of conversations, I think it would be helpful to start, as we always do, with a frame. What are some of the fundamental truths that are changing about work? We're going to spend this episode touching on the key issues around the future of work. Then, over the next several episodes, We'll cover each one in detail, discussing what it means for corporate leaders to rethink talent oversight to ensure their companies are fit for purpose in a changing economy. Today, we'll hear from several of those experts and thought leaders. We start with Sonia Sepaban. Sonia is a scientist and engineer by training. She started her career at NASA and then held leadership roles at companies like General Dynamics and Northrop Grumman. She now serves on the boards of Genomenon and Cooper Standard and is channeling her passion for applying technology to improve diversity and inclusion through her new startup, Our Office. The key thing is uh, the way that um, you know, leaders are able to embrace the changes that are coming and be flexible and adapt to those. The definition of workforce itself is changing. And it has two components. The first component, of course, is the human capital uh, part of the workforce. And the second part, I think, is what I call now the participation of machines in the workforce. Ashley, the role of machines in the workplace is fascinating and probably one of the first things that comes to mind when folks imagine the future of work. But equally as important is the human side. And this is where things like high EQ or emotional quotient become critical for leaders, as does creating the kinds of corporate cultures we've discussed in earlier episodes, cultures that are inclusive, innovative, and encourage development and exploration. And I can't think of anyone who understands that better than Libby Sartain. In her former life as a CHRO, Libby has helped shape legendary corporate cultures at places like Yahoo and Southwest Airlines. She now serves on corporate boards, including the Manpower Group, where understanding talent development and the future of work is core to the business. 
So I think the word job is going away and all things related to jobs, jobs descriptions, job advertisements, you know, some it's a very confining kind of thing. So I think we need to think more about work and work can happen any place, any time now. So really analyzing work or curating it, what is the best way to get the work you have inside a company or outside a company done? Can it be done well by technology? Can someone else do it better and more efficiently than you? What kind of core talent do you need inside because you really want to own it and you want to own everything that comes from that? And we haven't gotten to even the top of what that's going to become. I think you're going to have to be looking more and more for someone who is a good fit culturally and, and aligned with the purpose and the goals of your organization, but who is a continuous learner because um, people are going to be moving around, doing different things, and they're going to have to continue to learn. And so we that's another confining thing. You know, you didn't just graduate and you get a job and you just stay there. You're going to be learning new technologies. You're going to be learning new ways to work. You're going to be moving on new teams. So there's got to be a lot of learning and agility and and uh, adaptability going on. And there's ways to assess people's ability to do that. And there may be some jobs that don't require that. And people who don't have that capacity will be put in jobs that don't require it. That point about learning agility and adaptability is core to our broader conversation. And it circles back to a key point we've discussed at length before, the importance of creating a culture that is agile and able to adapt to these new ideas of talent and how work gets done. Your conversation with Rich Sternen uncovered some valuable insights here. Rich has spent his career identifying and nurturing talent as a tech recruiter. In the last several years, his work is focused on how to understand, identify, and recruit those who are applying artificial intelligence to solve business problems. So he sees the link between culture, innovation, and diversity firsthand. There's several lanes that have to be addressed at once, opening up to different schools, um, changing the hiring manager uh, thinking thought process around what is a legitimate set of skills. But then you can do those two things, and then you have a third thing. If the environment is still terrible for women, then it doesn't matter what skills that they have if they're going to come into a place and say, oh my God, this place is not for me. And there's a lot of training that can be done about communication styles and conversations, which address everything from like introversion, which is really important. Uh, Neurodiversity is becoming something which actually is um, is starting to be addressed. I think the most popular example are um, folks with autism. Um, the My son actually just uh, edited a film where the director was a high-functioning autistic person who was nonverbal, right, and um, communicated through a, a talk box. And um, the whole film was about the differences in communication. And there's science behind the fact that um, that I think I mentioned that people who are neurodiverse communicate as effectively as people who aren't, but the styles are so different that people don't get it. Um, so neurodiversity is is literally exactly that, like people who think differently than the typical people think and express. Rich's example of neurodiversity is something we'll dedicate a whole upcoming episode to. It really challenges the very concept of the word disability and shifts our mindsets to looking at individual skill sets, experiences, and ways of thinking. The idea of neurodiversity uncovers some deep cultural biases we have around things like who makes an effective communicator or a good leader. Another piece of rethinking our bias around workers is how it relates to age. 
We now have four generations in the workplace. We're living longer. And how we think about getting the most out of all the talent that's available will be an imperative for businesses who want to stay competitive. Both Rich and Libby had interesting insights there. We'll start with Rich, who felt the impact of this bias in a very personal way. One thing that people don't talk about when it comes to diversity, by the way, and I think this is clearly on my mind because of who I am, is age um, and ageism. And, and I don't think I am privileged. I'm, I'm super privileged. I'm embarrassingly privileged. And, and I'm aware of that. Um, I've also run into situations where I've been explicitly told or been in the room that um, people my age aren't welcome in the firm. Like, I, I was, it, was, it was very interesting to experience, what, 3%? of maybe 2% of what other people experience every day. But it's the same basic assumptions that are bad in every other area, honestly. I don't think there's a, a difference except for pervasiveness and popularity of the problem. I think ageism is not a very popular problem compared to gender diversity. And subjectively, I think gender diversity is a, is a more serious issue right now. But I think as the population ages, you're gonna see more and more and more of this. I think. You're going to see more and more people sort of doing interesting things that they choose to do um, wherever they decide to do it um, because work lives are going to be much longer. Um, I read a book about a year ago called The 100-Year Life. And basically, if you were born in 2007 or, or later in a developed country, you'll probably live to be 107 and you'll be productive into your 80s. So think of that. You can't retire when you're 65 and expect to fund your lifestyle till you're, you know, 107, but also you don't want to. So I think people will be doing very interesting and different things in their life, coming in and out of the workforce, being educated and re-educated, taking time to be with family, both raising kids and taking care of elders. So I think there's going to be a lot more flexibility and people figuring out how to constantly reinvent themselves. And I think the, co the corporation and boards are going to have to think about how we keep people engaged to our purpose and so that, that we can engage them and use their talent when they want to share it with us. Sonia Sepaban echoed that last point, the importance of purpose. Our listeners may remember that we touched on the idea of purpose when we talked about the critical role that the CHRO plays in helping to link strategy and talent. According to research from Bain & Company, employees who feel a sense of purpose are two and a half times more productive. And as Sonia points out, this is especially true for younger workers. We've all heard about the generational uh, changes. Uh, you know, I, when I tell people this, sometimes they act surprised. But the millennials became the largest generation in the workforce in 2016. At 35% of the workforce in 2016, they were the largest generation. And by 2025, they will be 75% of the workforce. Uh, so that's, that's huge, right? And uh, we still talk, a lot of us in Gen X and baby boomers, we talk about millennials as they're just coming, but they're here and they're here to stay and their expectations are different. Uh, together with the Gen Z, the Gen Z is already, uh, you know, growing uh, fast and uh, is already a percentage of, a good percentage of the workforce, about 5 or 6%. So together, um, this Gen Z and millennial uh, population's um, expectations are 
going to shape uh, how we need to manage and be prepared to manage the workforce. 80 to 90% of them, whether they're male, female, uh, straight, gay, you know, whatever race they are, they say that one of their top three criteria for an employer is their diversity and inclusion policies and approach. They want to work for socially responsible companies. They want a purpose. They want to understand the purpose of the organization they're associated with, and they want to identify with that. Ashley, as you know, the idea of purpose is at the heart of healthy organizations, something I learned from your conversation with Simon Holland. Yes, that was a good one. Simon is a partner in the organizational effectiveness practice at Oliver Wyman, where he studies workplace transformation. This idea of purpose and its impact on the future of work feature prominently. For an organization to be effective, it needs to be both healthy and smart. And, 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 and so the smart piece, for example, would be, you know, the, the operating model is, is, well, is well thought through and it's well defined. The organization is well designed. The post processes and policies and, and the procedures are, are aligned with the results that the organization is trying to get. Those, those things are, you know, most firms are very comfortable dealing in that space because it's, it's a pretty logical step-by-step process to re-engineer something. And you've heard all these phrases, you know, process re-engineering or Six Sigma or these are all things that, you know, are making an organization smarter. But actually, not enough work has gone into making the organization healthier. And what we mean by that is engaged workforce, people who feel like they're a part of um, about a part of the proposition, a part of the solution. They've, they feel like they belong to something. They, they intellectually understand what it is they're being asked to do, and they're both willing and able to do it. And, you know, those are the things that often get left out. It's we assume that just by telling somebody to do something or sending out a memo or some clever communication campaign that people are going to adopt what it is we want them to do and go and do it. Well, that's clearly that's clearly not the case. How do we engage workforce right from not just intellectually but emotionally? How do we how do we drive that engagement by including them in the decisions that are being made? How do we create an environment for them that make them feel good? Okay. So we've gotten a taste of the human side of how work is changing. But remember Sonia's point at the top of the show, that participation of machines in the workforce is another key part of the future of work. And how people and machines interact is at the heart of that future. Libby Sartain framed this well. You've got everything from the Uberization of everything where um, people can work for themselves and platforms make that available and we're finding more and more areas where that's applicable and I think that'll continue to happen. Um, I love that you can get a dog walker or you can um, get a cab and you know in most um, and get your food delivered in two seconds Uh, but not all jobs will be able to be Uberized but I think we'll be able to kind of Uberize more and more jobs because there will be some on-demand work in what might be our traditional corporations that will be available and we'll begin to trust just like we trust the car will come pick us up. Ashley, Libby's point there about the Uberization of work is a great example of how technology and specifically how humans interact with that technology is fundamentally reshaping our ideas of work. Yes, and that reshaping creates an imperative for boards and business leaders to better understand the intersection of talent, technology, productivity, and long-term value creation. That's why I was fascinated by your conversation with Sid Surrey. He really underscored Libby's point about rethinking how work gets done. 
right. Sid is a principal researcher at Microsoft Research AI. In a book he and co-author Mary Gray wrote called Ghost Work, Sid looks at the unseen work that happens to deliver services for companies like Amazon, Google, Microsoft, and Uber. These so-called ghost workers perform on-demand, often repetitive tasks, like flagging X-rated content, proofreading, transcribing audio, confirming identities, and captioning video. Sid's research captures how increasingly we think about work in the context of a job to be done. And this, coupled with tools like apps and other platforms that connect companies with on-demand workers, is changing how work happens. To answer the question about what will work look like 30 years from now, I looked back 30 years to start and what was happening 30 years ago. Uh, 30 years ago, I think Windows 3.1 was not yet a thing or, or just out. People were still using dial-up modems. Using the web was not a widespread activity. So if you look 30 years in the future, what you have to do is think about something that's kind of niche now that you predict will be mainstream later. And what I think will be the big difference is that you can now hire labor. You can hire a human being through the click of a mouse, through an automated system, through software. And I think that's going to be the thing that 30 years from now, we're gonna look back and say, yeah, that was a different thing. The fact that we can get this on-demand talent at a moment's notice from an always available labor pool around the world full of experts, that is going to be the game changer. What does it mean for work to come through an app? Think about something like Uber, right? You're an Uber driver and you know you, you, you go on your shift and jobs start coming in, you take the jobs, you drive people from A to B, you get, you get paid, you repeat. That API, the work, the request for the ride is coming through an API, coming through an app. One of the reasons we called the book Ghost Work is a lot of this work is actually happening hidden behind the scenes. So what a lot of people don't know is when you are interacting with your Facebook feed or your Twitter feed or if you're using a search engine, what you don't see is that a lot of the data and algorithms, a lot of the data generated to train the algorithms that you're using was generated by humans. And it's done behind the scenes, it's done behind APIs, and, and, and therefore hidden from the end user. And so when I say work coming through an, through an API or through an app, that can be kind of overt work, like Uber, for example, or more hidden work, like you know, Mechanical Turk or the other three platforms we studied in our book. Mechanical Turk? That sounds like a band I would have listened to in high school. I know, right? What Sid is referring to is a web-based platform created by Amazon, which functions as a crowdsourcing marketplace for talent. It's a website where you can post jobs and people can come and do those jobs for pay. It's about that simple. And the innovation of this website was that you can do all that automatically. That is to say, I can write a piece of software that posts a job to this task, workers come do the task, and then I can evaluate their work and pay them all automatically through an API. More and more work is coming through a website or an API or an app, as opposed to maybe a traditional 
kind of hiring model where there was a manager or a boss handing work down to a to an employee. And I think that component, that work coming through an API, work coming through an app, is going to be a bigger and bigger part of the future of work. Sid talks about work coming through an API, but most of us know it better by the term gig economy. Whether it's grocery shopping and food delivery through apps like Instacart and DoorDash, or driving and dog walking through apps like Lyft and Rover. Exactly. Mechanical Turk, or MTurk for short, and other sites like it create a similar marketplace. But instead of delivering toilet paper or walking your labradoodle, these jobs are computer-based, what MTurk calls human intelligence tasks. These are typically things that computers and algorithms can't quite handle on their own yet. Emphasis on the word yet. And that brings us to another big technology impacting the future of work, artificial intelligence. Here's Rich again describing the work he does at EY. I'm the project leader for artificial intelligence hiring for global innovation and client technology. So I help build out these AI labs around the world that have the opportunity to solve some ridiculously interesting problems. There is no sector. There doesn't exist a sector which is not going to be affected by artificial intelligence. Um, I can't think of one. So I think there are more kinds of AI than people are aware of. There are certainly more kinds of AI than I'm aware of. Um, But think about it this way. Does your business use machines in any way? Predictive machinery failure. If you know when things are going to break before they break, then you save a ton of money. That's that's a core part, you know, of of some of the AI solutions that I've seen built. Um, do you, does anything that you have uh, contain any kind of visual representation, any kind of product? Then image classifiers, because you can do product recommendations. Um, you can, and if you fail at that, which we should talk about, and it really circles back to diversity, then it could really negatively impact your business. Um, I don't think I just can't think of a sector where it's not. going to be involved. What's interesting about the link between AI, as Rich describes here, and platforms like Mechanical Turk, is that many of the jobs on MTurk are asking humans to identify images that are then fed back into AI systems to help the algorithms learn and get smarter. That really underscores the vital connection in the human-machine partnership. We may feel that we can't live without technology, but technology can't function without us either. And that gets to another core question at the heart of the future of work, how AI is reshaping the job market, both the jobs available and the idea of work to be done. Here's Simon again. One of the interesting things is uh, for years we've thought that with the growth of digitization, augmented reality, artificial intelligence, et cetera, many, many jobs would be lost and companies would have much smaller workforces. I mean, it's interesting because those trends have been predicted through, you know, many, many, many years, decades, et cetera, with, you know, when, when industrialization happens, that, you know, it'll cause the workforce to do so and so, or when, you know, when, when uh, uh, telecommunications or, or, or te- uh, technology becomes more advanced, it's going to cause more jobs, et cetera. And actually, in reality, the truth has been the opposite. You know, most organizations have grown their workforces. I remember listening to this same person that talked about their 350,000 person R&D team who said that, um, you know, let's say, let's say you could take a workforce of 100,000 people and maybe, maybe 30,000 jobs could be replaced by machine learning, etc. Because most people, when they think about the work they do, often machines will replace 
the the very the repetitive pattern of work that they can do by if it's like sorting data or something like that we know machines can take care of that so if that's what people are doing what what he was saying is which is i think is really fascinating is you know the thing that we've lost in work is the ability to really think um think outside the box for want of a better word think creatively about solving problems in the workforce and most of the time what we're doing in work is just repeating patterns we're just doing you know we come in and we do the sort of work that machines really should be doing so that the human brains that creative geniuses that we all are you know can get to solve real problems here's the way i think about it at any given moment in time there's a set of problems that technology can solve and then Conversely, there's also a set of problems that technology can't solve, and therefore you need humans to do it. And then as technology advances, it can now solve new problems that we used to need humans for. And that can result in job displacement, absolutely. But then there's always this new frontier of new problems that we always create for ourselves and that we need humans for again. Imagine if you could take 30,000 people and instead of repeating the same jobs over and over that machines could do and take those 30,000 people and get them thinking about the customer experience in innovative ways is like wow what a what a catapult that could be to some organization's success and I think I think you know rather than thinking about machines are going to cause workforces to shrink actually what if machines caused workforces to actually not have to do all the repetitive mundane maybe low value kind of work and actually take you know a, a lot of those people if not all of those people and turn them to the real problems that actually customers are, are demanding that we solve and you know what sort of organizations we would you have then and i think that's a really exciting uh, dilemma i think work 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 uh, forces and businesses are, really have to come to terms with simon captured it perfectly it's both exciting and a dilemma the rise of machines in the workforce can open up some really amazing possibilities, but it also opens up a new set of challenges. Specifically, how do we train and retrain the workforce to be ready for this new kind of work? And how do we ensure a whole class of workers doesn't get left behind in the process? And the data bears this out. According to Edelman's 2019 Trust Barometer, two-thirds of workers worldwide are afraid of being replaced by machines. This tension between the promise of new technology and the fear of its impact on the job market is a critically important issue for boards and other business leaders as they consider the future of work. It's something Sid really drives home. We call it the paradox of automation's last mile, that as technology progresses, there's a new set of problems we want to tackle and we need humans to do that. So can technology take jobs from humans? Absolutely. Are we in any danger of running out of work? I don't think so. Technology will solve problems that humans were previously used to solve. Those humans will get displaced. Now, when new jobs get created and we want to solve new problems, are we creating those new jobs for the people who got displaced or for a different set of people entirely? It's, it's a big risk. And right now, quite frankly, we don't have the data to answer this kind of question. Computers are really good at doing the same or similar tasks over and over and over and over again. Humans are really good at creativity, original thought, spontaneity. So one of the big opportunities I see is how do we combine the best of both? How do we combine the best attributes of machines and humans together to create something that, to solve problems that neither could solve alone? 
I think that's a key open scientific question. Therein lies the challenge and the opportunity, and we'll dig into both over our next several episodes. First up, we'll discuss the human element of the future of work. So I think the workforce, uh, the human capital part of it that we're used to managing is um, changing more drastically and faster uh, than we think they are. And it's all for the good. Uh, We just need to understand it and change the policies and the processes and the approach and the management and the incentives uh, in a way that matches uh, their uh, their needs. And that is good, both for the company and, and for them. I can't wait. For guest bios, more resources, and a link to this episode's transcript, check out the show notes or the episode page at nacdonline.org slash podcast. Future Fluency is produced and edited by Bruno Falcon with production support from Carrie Sheehan. Special thanks to Jeanette Woods. Our theme song was composed by Kyle Oppenheimer. Future Fluency is a production of the National Association of Corporate Directors. For more information on NACD or to become a member, please visit nacdonline.org.